Yep, I can hear you. Okay, it's 1.30, so we'll get started. Um, thanks, everyone. This is the Planning Commission Retreat for 2023. Earlier today, we had a site visit, former Camera 12 site on 2nd, 2nd Street. Um, and now we'll go to item three on the agenda. Welcome introduction, Robert Manford. So, good afternoon, Commissioners, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to the Planning Commission Retreat of 2023. This is something that we normally do every fall, uh, always late October or early to mid November, for us to sit back, look behind what we decisions that have been made by the uh, Commission, which areas we need some kind of uh, feedback on, and then basically the general trend of development, how it impacts us. And this is coded in uh, Article 2, Section 4 of the bylaws of the Planning Commission. So it's also subject to uh, the Brown Act. Nonetheless, this is supposed to be very, very relaxed and informative as well. So feel free to uh, check in when someone is talking. It's not as organized and as formal as we normally would do the Planning Commission. <laughs> so on that note, I will introduce uh, the city staff over here. And I'll start with myself, Robert Michael, Deputy Director for Planning. Uh, there is Gerard Ferguson, principal planner on the citywide team. And we do have uh, John Tu, Division Manager uh, for Development Review. And uh, we just got joined by uh, Aaron Yu, TV from City Attorney's Office. And on Zoom, I believe we do have Sylvia. So, who is uh, a division manager as well. Uh, last but not the least is our director, Chris Burton, who will say a few words before we hand it over to our chair. Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks, Robert. Um, great to see everybody and nice to see people in person as well. Um, so, just wanted to just say a couple of words, just obviously to thank you all for your service. We you know, really appreciate you always taking the time spending so much of your time with us uh, on a Wednesday night. Um, you know, the, the role and uh, the importance of our planning commission just continues to evolve right, on an ongoing basis. And I think there's such a, a dynamic environment right now with a lot going on. Um, I think we're in some of the most challenging economic conditions for development we've seen, certainly through my career, and that includes the Great Recession, right? When you actually look at where things develop in term right now, we're in the midst and depth of a housing crisis that we just don't seem to have a path out of right now. Um, you know, the political dynamic is very different. This last year, we've turned over a majority of our city council. So the people that are learning as they go. Um, and so the importance of the planning commission with, you know, approvals, but also those recommendations into city council just remains to be incredibly important, incredibly valued. So we really appreciate the partnership. We appreciate the opportunity to have open dialogue with all of you as the planning commission. Certainly appreciate moments like this where we can take the time and kind of sit and listen and learn together. Um, this is such sort of valuable and important time. So with that, I'll let the, the team get on with it. I won't be able to stay the whole time, but I certainly really appreciate all of your time. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. All right, so next on our agenda, we have a presentation on the cost of residential development, and that'll be from Jared Ferguson from the Office of Economic Development. Jared Ferguson, a principal planner. I lead the, the housing team and our city-wide group. Um, and we have our consultants joining. I, I don't know if they're on quite yet because I think we're a little ahead of schedule. But um, so 
Glad we have that. What they're going to be talking about today is our um, cost of residential development study. Um, so we started this work um, back in 2018 um, when we, we launched our housing crisis work plan, which has now become our housing catalyst work plan. We really focused uh, a lot of our policy work on how we could increase housing um, production. And, and kind of to inform that policy work, we wanted to have a deeper understanding of all of the inputs that go into producing housing, not just what the city controls, but what are all the environmental factors, economic factors that go into, into creating the housing. And so um, we've had three previous versions of this study. Um, we did one in 2018 when we launched the intervention. We did an update in 2019, and we had a little bit of a lag because of COVID. We did our last update last year in 2022, and we did uh, this most recent one uh, in October of 2023. Um, and we intend to continue to regularly do it so that um, we, again, we have kind of the, the contextual current environmental picture of what of what's going on uh, to inform um, you know how we're how we're you know maybe modifying our policy work or how we're making adjustments so that we can be in the best position possible to increase housing production. Um, and also other work around, uh, you know, preservation uh, as well. And so uh, the two re two reports that you will be hearing about today, one is on uh, market rate housing, um, and it is a uh, it's a feasibility feasibility analysis that looks at hypothetical development. So these aren't actual projects, but it looks at a variety of different development types, ranging from uh, five stories, seven stories to high rise in different geographic locations throughout the city, and then estimates their, their feasibility uh, 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 being built. Um, and then there's also an additional analysis on affordable housing, and it looks more in depth at actual projects that have been built in San Jose and compares them to other projects that have been built um, across the state, uh, being the ones that have accepted tax, tax credits. And so um, we have our consultant uh, team from Century Urban. I don't know if they're, they're on yet. Uh, I think we're a little bit, I think they're planning on joining at 140. They're gonna take us through kind of the, the results of, of those, those two reports that were presented to the city council uh, on October 26th at a study session. Um, hopefully we should have about 15 minutes for each report and then about 15 minutes for, for questions. Um, I, I think we probably want to get through the, the, the slides first to make sure we cover it before we get into the questions, but I think you know, hopefully we can leave enough time for, for some discussion. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you want to add anything for yeah, yeah. some time. So I, I would encourage you to get the opportunity um, to take a look at the video from the study session. So in addition to our consultants, we actually had uh, a number of uh, experts there as well so to give sort of expert testimony and context to the work that we did i'm sure we can follow up with the link after the uh, after the um, study session today so we had somebody from and rather than in the past years past we've had developers kind of give the generalist approach and we wanted to change that a little bit this year so in this time we brought in somebody who was uh, an expert in the real estate side to so the acquisition of land sort of putting deals together we brought in uh, uh, somebody who was, uh, works actively on pricing construction contracts. Um, so it was really focused on the actual cost of construction. We brought in somebody who was focused on um, the financing. So the financing is a huge part of this, as we'll get into. 
Um, and then lastly, we had an affordable developer who was speaking really to the difference between uh, market rate development and affordable development. So it's a crazy context. It's actually quite often more expensive to build an affordable unit than it is to build a market. There's a number of reasons why that is. Um, so, so I think that's just really valuable context to hear it from other voices uh, than just from city staff and consultants. Um, I'll spoil the punchline for you. It doesn't look good, right? And I think that's not a surprise to anybody. And um, when we went into this work initially, um, I think, you know, the other sort of context around this, I probably should have said more about this up front, um, you know, in the context of the housing crisis, it's really hard for staff, uh, you know, there's limits to what we can do. And then everybody else is around us, certainly elected officials, want to improve the situation, want to make changes. So a lot of policy was getting thrown at us around 2018. The whole response to the housing crisis was a work plan to say, what can we do to remove all barriers we have? And then since that time, we've seen the state take this on as a mantle and throw all manner of challenges at us through changes to state law that really changed the landscape and the way that we do our work. The intent of cost of development was really to point to this underlying issue of financial feasibility, which is actually a very significant part of the problem. And sometimes you can't policy your way out of the problem because we ultimately we rely on private investment and private development to deliver all of the buildings that are included in our 40-year vision for the future of the city. Right? We as a city don't go out there and build very much. Um, and so, so that's the challenge. That's why I think this work is so important and so important to understand because it influences so much of what we do. Anybody, if someone has a question for Chris or John? Yeah, I got a question. Why are you here? I got a question. Yeah, let me come up with the phone this morning. We're trying to help you. Is that expected? Uh, like, open? I think they got different dates, though, right? I think Nosh, uh, what was it, Nosh? Yes, yes, Nosh. They said they were trying to aid on March. Uh, early. What? It's, they said January. Yeah, and then the uh, Axel in place would also be sometime in the spring. We're bringing you kind of entertainment hub. We're hoping that area gets all activated. I heard at least from Dan and them that they were trying to go by Christmas. It was pretty impressive. But I'm excited to see what they do in that area. I would love a beautiful bunch spot for Sunday down there. And then the way that the space opens up to the Paseo, hopefully we would kind of interact with the entire plaza in that area. I just wanted to say what was striking to me was how complimentary they were of the, of the city staff. That's really good to hear. I think like a lot of things in the media, we tend to hear the complaints and how bureaucratic and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, which I always take with a grain of salt, but I know working with all of you, they work really hard and it was really gratifying to me and I hope to you guys that they're, they're very complimentary of the city staff and collaboration. Um, that, was, that was great to hear. That's good to hear. I think we have uh, Jake, Kraft, and Griselda. Can you hear us? I think you're you're on now uh, with the uh, <laughs> the commission and everyone. I can hear you. Good afternoon, everyone. I think we can. Jennifer, can you turn on the presentation? Right, Jake. I uh, while we were waiting, I, I gave a an intro, so feel free to uh, take it away from here. 
I'm sorry, I had a little bit of trouble hearing you. You said what well, well, while we were waiting. I, I gave an intro. intro before you guys joined, so feel free to, to jump into your, your slides. Jump in. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, uh, thank you very much, everyone, for having us. I hope the information we provide today is helpful and interesting. Um, I don't know that there's going to be a ton of surprises, but maybe this will put a little bit of detail to uh, the, the work that we've done and, and what we found in our most recent report. Um, you may be aware that this is the fourth time this report has been done in the city. We didn't do the original two, but they were done in 2018 and 2019. And then there was a break during COVID. And then we did the first report we've done for the city in 2022, which we presented last year. And this is the second time we've done this report. And I guess I'm not in control of the slide. So if you want to go to the next slide... Um, what I'm going to talk about today is the general findings from our report and then what the report is based on, the prototypes that we analyzed, the residential development prototypes we analyzed, the scenarios we analyzed, the assumptions we used for rental and for sale for the prototypes, the cost assumptions we used, the residual values, which are in a way the results of the analysis. And then we also did some consultation with uh, stakeholders, uh, developers, brokers, and others to sort of field test, if you were, our conclusions, and I can share their feedback, which in general is very supportive of the work that we did. Um, so without further ado, if we could go to the next slide. So for those of you who may not be familiar with or uh, or not, did not read our 2022 report. In 2022, um, we found that the residential feasibility was challenged uh, for new development in San Jose for uh, the prototypes that we studied. And unfortunately, relative to the 2022 report this year, the uh, feasibility was even more, more challenged. A lot of that has to do with current market conditions. So, uh, you know, some of the some of the big things that have changed since 2022 uh, costs for development, particularly hard costs, have continued to go up substantially. Our total estimated cost from 2022 inflated about 12 to 13 percent on average since we looked at costs about 18 months ago when we looked at the cost for the 2022 study. And that's had a significant impact on feasibility. Um, you're probably aware from reading the news that uh, interest rates have doubled over the past 12 months, and that has a major effect on target returns on cost, on borrowing for uh, borrowing a development loan. And now construction interest rates, which I believe we assumed in 2022 uh, were around 5%, are now hovering over 8%. Um, and you know, on the slightly positive side for feasibility, rental and sale prices have increased, but those increases have not been sufficient to offset the, the two other things I mentioned, the, the increase in the cost of development and the increase in interest rate and target returns. Um, so the conclusion here is that you know, feasibility is challenged across the many residential prototypes we analyzed. And even in the sensitivity analysis, where we looked at 5% uh, 
positive changes in rental rates in condominium sale prices and 5% reductions in development costs, even their feasibility is challenged. So overall, this is a very difficult time for developments like the prototypes to make sense. So that, that's the overall conclusion. Now, now I'll go into a little bit of the details. If we can go to the next slide. So we analyzed a variety of prototypes, uh, three sort of categories of rental prototypes and two categories of for sale prototypes. You'll see the second line there is construction type. So we looked at type five, type three, and type one. Type five generally being low rise wood frame buildings, type three being a mid rise building and type one being a high rise building. And you'll see we looked at type five and type one for the for sale prototypes. These prototypes, we kept the same as the prototypes that had been studied from 2018 to allow sort of an apples to apples comparison. So there was no changes uh, to the prototypes this year or uh, last year. Um, you can see the prototypes ranged from about 65 to 350 units and uh, generally assumed above grade parking except for the type one prototypes. And we looked at these prototypes across various submarkets within the city, including the South and East, the Central, West, North, and Downtown. Next slide, please. Before you go, can you tell me what efficiency? Sure, efficiency is the relationship between the gross square footage and the net square footage, uh, the net rentable square footage or the net saleable square footage. So for example, you might have a, a utility room in a apartment building that would not be, you know, some rentable state space, but you still have to build it. Do you count commercial space differently? Would, would uh, no, well, these prototypes did not include commercial, uh, commercial space in them, but uh, so th that would be included in, in rentable or saleable square footage. That would be part of the net, net rentable or saleable square footage if, if we had had it. But in this, in these prototypes, the efficiency is really the relationship between the actual space inside of the units that are rented or sold to residents versus, you know, the lobby, the hallways, the utility rooms, common areas that are not directly rented. So you still have to spend money to build those spaces, but you don't get paid any rent per square foot for those spaces in the way we calculated it. Okay, thank you. Okay, so this page shows uh, some more detail about the type one scenarios we looked at. So in addition to a basic market scenario where we looked at, these are the, the high rise scenarios, we looked at them uh, based on the market rates for rental projects or sale projects, including the statutory and loo fees. We also looked at a, a waiver scenario, um, which corresponds to some of the laws on the books in San Jose now in which uh, in addition to the units, there is a at market rental rates and sale prices, there is a waiver of the in lieu fees, 100% waiver of the in lieu fees, and 50% waiver of some of the construction taxes. And finally, we looked at affordable scenarios that assumed 95% of the units leased or sold at market rates, 5% of the units at 100% AMI. And then again, a waiver of the statutory and lieu fees and the construction taxes. And again, these scenarios, the idea was to see in these waiver scenarios, 
is feasibility much more possible? And as I mentioned upfront, feasibility is still challenged across all of the scenarios. Uh, next slide, please. Why is there no uh, south or east? Is that just because of transportation and commercial activity or? Sorry, when you're saying there's no south or east, we did, it actually is here. We did oh, look at south okay. or east, but we didn't look at type one. So again, uh, we, we inherited where these prototypes were studied. And I guess when they were generated, the idea was it was more unlikely that you would have a, a high rise building in the south and east submarkets sure. versus it was more likely to, to be developed in one of the other submarkets in San Jose. I would just add that the study did evolve, has evolved from when they were first prepared. So originally type one was only um, examined or analyzed in downtown, but then type one was extended to be analyzed, I think in the West submarket, is it, Jake? Yeah, I think, well, we did look at the, the West, Central and North uh, yeah, for type West one. For type one. So it was and... extended. So so it has evolved over time, but it's just that um, certain prototypes are not looked at, certain construction types aren't looked at in every submarket because you don't see that type of development in that submarket. That's right, yeah. So this page reflects our assumptions for rental rates and rental income in apartments for new development in our prototypes. And you can see the South and East was the lowest rent area on average uh, versus the West being the highest. And to generate these numbers, we looked at new projects in these areas, which would correspond to what we were analyzing in the prototypes. And we used weighted averages to try to come up with the most appropriate rent that would make sense for our analysis. Uh, so again, so yes. Type, type one, well, looks like basically all the types yield the same rental rate. That's right, we did not see you know, it, it's interesting. You can obviously find individual examples since these these represent averages, but we did not see a major rental rate premium for type one projects. Mm -hmm. um, there, again, as I say, there are individual examples. That's not the case. And we've actually been looking at that a little bit more in some other markets where we're doing similar studies. And some years you see it, some years you don't. But when we ran the numbers, we did not see you know, an obvious, you know, 10 or 20% premium that would justify kind of a higher rent in, in that product type. Uh, next slide, please. Well, and just yeah, to kind of, um, fill that out a little bit, some of the developer feedback that we got was that um, rents in downtown and, you know, where, where you do see type one projects, they're actually lower than, than rents in other submarkets, regardless of the product type. And it's because they need to incentivize people to live in downtown. Yeah, and, you know, uh, again, because we're approaching this from a prototype standpoint, we sort of have to take a, a overall average. We have to come up with a number that represents a lot of different types of projects. But the reality is, obviously, there there is a lot of variety within individual products. Um, these are the sale price assumptions for the for sale prototypes that we studied. You can see, again, a range from $700 per square foot for type five in the north to $775. Um, and these are based on recent condominium sale, actual condominium sale data that we studied in order to generate these numbers. 
So um, the subtext is downtown is a bargain. <laughs> Sorry, downtown is a, I didn't quite hear bargain. you. Bargain. Yeah, I guess that is one way to look at it. The, the, the flip side of that is what Leo just mentioned that um, downtown uh, has been more challenged uh, in, in some ways. Uh, and, and that was expressed to us by, in some of the stakeholder feedback. But it's also that <clears throat> the price per square foot of downtown is on the higher end. So what, so you're, even though it's a bargain, you're getting less. You're getting less space. You're getting a small space. I thought the space was consistent. Okay. I don't, I don't think so. Is that, yeah. Is that, well, I'm confirming so that's. <clears throat> the square footage is fairly consistent. Isn't that a, is that a. Yes, the square footage is consistent across the submarkets for the prototypes that we studied. So what? Well, if they're consistent, why is the OS? Um, because I think the type five and the type one square footage is not the same. Oh. So the right, so the square footage is probably less than. Yeah, it was. Is the type one or five higher? Mm -hmm. Sale price is lower. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And Jake, you can go back to the summary table, summarizing prototypes. You, you can. Uh, yes. Well, I'm not in control, but whoever uh, is is in control can go back a couple pages and show the the prototypes shows the different square footages for the different uh, type one and type five. Or or if not, that's okay. Or not. Or we can keep going. Uh, we can keep going. <laughs> it's, it's, but the but to be clear, the the. Square footages per unit are different between the construction types, but they're not different um, across the market. Yeah, there, there's also different uh, building efficiency there too. So that that impacts both unit size and building efficiency. Okay, do you want to go to the next slide? Oh, oh, okay, great. So this slide details the costs of the various types of prototypes. And again, you can see we didn't, in general, um, uh, in general, the sort of hard costs we kept constant by the different submarkets, so that that didn't change. Um, the fees do vary a little bit by the submarkets because there are some different fees in different places. Um, but you can see here that the lowest hard costs are in Type Five construction, um, sort of Type Five rental. And then as you get higher in your building type, um, you're building mid-rise and then type one high-rise, the costs become more expensive. And the costs for condo projects are also typically more expensive since they have for sale amenities, somewhat generally nicer finishes, sometimes a nicer skin than uh, rental projects. And so those costs are higher than the rental projects. Um, the fees line here, those include a number of things. I just want to point out the biggest number in those line, those line uh, items are the in lieu affordable fees, followed by um, the school fees, construction taxes, the parkland fees, and then the least, uh, the smallest portion of that fee line item is the planning and building fees, which I believe represent less than one percent of the total cost of the project. So, uh, you know, while there are a number of fees here, the actual planning and building fees are not a big, necessarily a big piece of the overall project costs. Um, in addition to the municipal fees, we also have other soft costs. And this includes things like architecture and engineering, 
the interest cost for a construction loan, um, insurance, real estate taxes during construction, et cetera. And when you add all those together, you end up with the total hard and soft costs to build the project. And again, you can see that's lowest for the low rise rental project and highest for the high rise for sale project. And you can see they range between 765 and a, mil a little over a million one per unit. Am I missing something or are they losing money on downtown high rise? That's the punchline. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I don't think you're you're missing anything. I, I think that's that's why it's very challenging. It's very very challenging. That's the takeaway. Jake, I have a quick question. In, in regards to acquisition and cost of acquisition, I don't see that number on there. Is that's not included on that average you're, you're absolutely correct. And that in a way is what we are solving for in this analysis. And we call that residual value. So what we've done here in this analysis, and we're going to get there in I think the next slide or two, is we're taking the total value of the project and then we're subtracting the cost to build the project. And that tells us how much money is left for um, how much money is left for the land. I'm just looking to see. So actually there's a slide in the appendix. Could you go to slide 16, page 16? It's easier to explain this. It looks like 16 is the thank you slide. Uh, it's, it's after the thank you slide. Yeah, there's an oh, yeah. after the thank you slides. Yeah. Uh, sorry, it's slide 19, I guess, on your, on your, and it shows up. Okay, very good. Um, so this kind of gives an example of what we were doing and, and what residual value means, which I think is maybe timely to explain in advance of actually talking about the residual value conclusions. Um, imagine that you have a, you know, you've built a, a condo unit and you can sell it for $100. Um, that's just what condo units sell for in a given market. What we tried to calculate is does it make sense for a developer to build a building if they can sell it or to build that unit if they can sell it for $100? Obviously, if it costs them $110 to build the unit that they're going to sell for $100, they would say, well, I'm not building it at all. And that's the rightmost column here. You can see where the hard costs, the soft costs, and uh, their sales costs and profit add up to $110 of total cost, even before land. And so they, they would say, well, I would not spend $110 to build something I can sell for $100. By contrast, if you can build something where the total cost is, for example, in the, in the first example, on the far left, example one, $75, then you have $25 of residual value left over that you can use to pay for the land. So what we calculated was, again, what is this total cost, which I just went over on that previous slide. And we also calculated the total sale value. And then we're trying to find out, is there any space left in between them, which you, which is, um, which you can use to pay for the land? And so you know, if there's nothing left, then you can't pay for the land and theoretically land value is zero. If there's space left, then that tells you you can pay for the land. 
And then the question is, is that enough to actually buy land at what people who own land want to sell it for? Um, in this case, in our prototypes, they all look like number three, which is when we add up all these costs, which we just went over on the last slide, the costs add up to more than the value of the units. So not only would you not build the vertical building for $110 to sell it for $100, you don't have any money left over to pay for the land in the first place. Does that make sense? Yes. Does this consider any tax credits or you know any other financial um, incentives developers might get? Is there is there any calculation of how much that can impact these numbers for? Well, as I mentioned, for the type one, we did look at those waiver scenarios, which included a waiver of the in-lieu fees and partial waiver of the construction taxes. But no, we did not look at other. Otherwise, these were sort of market developments. And so we did not look at other types of incentives or structuring in, in these particular prototypes. And, and if, um, I don't know if the tax credits that you were um, referencing were, you know, tax credits related to like renewable energy or some other source, but if it's specifically low-income housing tax credits, then those are allocated to um, affordo um, affordable housing projects. And that's the subject of the next study. But no, I was thinking energy credits or any others. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we didn't we didn't automatically assume that, but yes, uh, we could analyze that. But once Jake summarizes the actual results, you'll see that um, they're not likely to make a, a significant dent in the gap. <laughs> Leo, I have a quick question too. In regards to hard cost, like construction cost, I know that during COVID things tripled because of scarcity and whatnot, and well, now we have inflation. Was after COVID, did construction costs go down at all? Not so, not so far um, that we have observed um, in the market. However, uh, I just heard, and this is a statewide index, but I just heard from someone else that they were talking recently to someone at the state, and they said that they they were they saw a decline in their index year over year of four percent. So that, but that's statewide. Keep in mind that statewide. Um, you know, in the Bay Area, we have not seen declines in costs yet. Okay, if you want to go back to back up a number of slides to where we were, just yeah, I think we're at slide 12, maybe. Hey, Jake, just because we have another presentation, you think we did most of your summary in the next five minutes? So, that... yes, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up, I'll wrap up shortly here. So, um just quickly on this slide, this is what I mentioned on at the beginning that costs from 22 to 23 increased over 12% uh, from one study to the next. So that, that has not helped feasibility. You could go to the next slide. Um, this is a summary of total costs excluding land since the study started. So to the question about you know what has happened since COVID, you can see that costs have really gone up substantially. I mean, there, there was a break between 2019 and 2022. You can see the cost to build per unit has gone up a lot. Uh, we, we, in fairness, did not do the studies in 2018 and 2019, but assuming the methodology was pretty similar, uh, things have gotten much more expensive to build. Do we know what those costs are? Labor, materials, what, what it's, increases? Yeah, it's a combination of both. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it's, it's been sort of across the board. Um, unfortunately. Um, next, next slide. Uh, so 
these are kind of the, the bottom line takeaways. As you recall, I was explaining that residual value is the difference between what the project's worth in the end and what it costs to build. And so if you have a negative number, that means, again, we're subtracting $110 of cost from a $100 value unit. And here you can see these numbers are all negative. The least negative numbers were in the type five construction in large part because they're just cheaper to build. The type one, as somebody pointed out earlier, it's, it's very hard to make money on because they're uh, much more expensive to build that type of construction, which requires steel and is just a much more involved uh, construction project. The other thing you can see that's a takeaway from this is that, you know, in general, this is not a huge surprise, but markets with higher rents tend to be, you know, have a little bit better feasibility. So for example, on the type three construction, the West market, which has higher rents, presents more feasibility than the central or the north. Um, but in general, the lower rise projects uh, are more feasible than the higher rise projects. And that was true both in the rental and the for sale prototypes. Um, if you wanna move to the next slide. Uh, we presented these results to uh, a large number of developers and brokers and other industry professionals who, who joined us on a couple of calls with the city. And in general, they supported everything that uh, the report says. They thought that feasibility was very challenged across the board. Um, to the extent that they gave comments to us, the majority of their comments would actually make feasibility worse than we described it. They seem to say that even beyond the return that a developer needed to get that we assumed, they wanted to assume even a higher one. They also thought perhaps our rents were too aggressive and they would look, have seen lower rents in some of their projects. And finally, they pointed to the fact that operating expenses have increased substantially over the last year, especially insurance, which has been you know, a major challenge, I think for most real estate operators uh, across the country and, and in the Bay Area. Um, so those are sort of the main takeaways and feedback from speaking with developers and brokers. Um, you know, in terms of things to do, they felt that waiving impact fees would help, but alone would be insufficient to you know, really spur huge housing development. And that that is really going to require some changes in our market conditions, interest rates, uh, cost to build, et cetera. So that's that that was the takeaway, basically uh, supporting the report that we did and the and the results that we found. And I think if you go to the next slide, I think that is it. So I, I know we have another report to do. If uh, there are any other questions uh, or anything that was unclear, happy to happy to answer any questions. So I, I think it would be good to get into maybe Griselda's and then we can maybe kind of pull some more questions at the end. That way we're sure to get through. I think, uh, yeah. Terrific, sure. terrific. I'll go on mute. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Jake. Thanks. Yeah, uh, can you pull up the other um, slides, uh, Jennifer, the other uh, presentation? Give me a second. The, uh... Good looking people. <laughs> <laughs> the fire part of the good looking people. <laughs> Michael, that's why you call the townhouses developers bread and butter. 
Thank you. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Griselda Blackburn, and I will be presenting the Affordable Housing Cost Study. Uh, Century Urban was engaged to prepare an update to a study that we completed in 2022 on the factors that are driving affordable housing costs in San Jose. Um, the study evaluates the cost of developing affordable housing within the city through a review of all of the major cost components, and that includes land acquisition costs, construction costs, and soft costs, and to identify the trends and factors that contribute to the high cost to build affordable housing projects. We then compared uh, those cost components to other California cities with similar construction typology uh, to identify cost variances to San Jose projects and evaluate the specific cost drivers. Um, we obtained costs from tax credit applications for the projects that received an award um, since the last study was completed. Next slide. So we, we conducted our analysis by evaluating all of the projects that received a tax credit allocation uh, in the first round of uh, 2022 through the first round of 2023. Um, there have since been uh, two rounds, um, one that has already announced awards, but um, that the awards were announced in August and this analysis needed to be completed by early September, so we weren't um, able to include those projects. But in that time frame, there were eight projects located in San Jose totaling 987 units, um, and those were in buildings ranging in size uh, from 60 units to 270 units and building heights ranging from five stories to seven stories. 43% uh, of the units are in projects that applied under the large family housing type, 30% uh, applied under the special needs housing type, and one project representing 27% of the units, that's the 271 unit building, um, was non-targeted, meaning that the project is competing under a geographic set-aside instead of uh, housing type set-aside, such as large family and special needs. Uh, for comparison, we looked at projects in other cities in four counties that have projects with a similar construction typology with buildings ranging in height from five to seven stories. Uh, these uh, counties included Alameda County, the city and county of San Francisco, Los Angeles County, and we also looked at other cities within Santa Clara County that also received tax credit award um, during the time frame. And within those counties, we identified 21 projects um, totaling 2,929 units in buildings that range in height from five to seven. So we limited our analysis to, to buildings, projects that were within that um, height range. Uh, so in the data set, there were three projects in Alameda County, which, uh, which totaled 12% of the total units. There were 11 projects in Los Angeles County, uh, which represents 54% of the units, five projects in San Francisco representing 19% of the units, and two projects in um, Santa Clara uh, County that represented 12 units. And of those projects in the other cities, um, there was also an overweight to large family projects um, with 47% of the total units. Okay. Next slide. So be before we move on to the results, it's important to note that affordable housing projects also face the same pressures as market rate housing um, related to current market conditions. So as my colleague Jake uh, noted in his presentation, construction costs have continued to increase well above inflation and have doubled 
over the past uh, year. So both of those factors have s- contributed to the significantly higher costs that we see in the current study as compared to uh, the results from our prior study. So, next slide. So comparing the San Jose projects in this study to the study that we completed in 2022, we see that there has been a, a pretty significant shift away from special needs projects to more large family projects. And that uh, appears to be a direct result of policy goals at the local and state level. Uh, we also noted that building heights decreased slightly from the prior study, uh, where there were uh, high-rise projects uh, that uh, were included or received a tax credit award. Uh, but in this study of the eight projects, there were none um, that were of a high-rise type one typology. Um, also, because there are more large family projects um, in this study, unit sizes are also larger as compared to the prior study. Next slide. So this slide provides a very high level summary of the overall study findings, uh, which I'll discuss in greater detail in the following slides. Uh, But what we see is a pretty significant shift in the average cost per unit for projects in this study uh, as compared to the prior study, which covered the period from uh, late 2019 through 2021. Um, as you can see, 20, from 2021 to 2022, the average unit costs increased by 13%, uh, with another 24% increase between 2022 and 2023. Um, we don't believe that rising contru- construction costs tells this, the whole story, um, because as I noted earlier, the projects in the study are larger than in the prior study, with uh, the prior study projects averaging 932 square foot per unit, and the projects in this study averaging 1,170 square one square feet per unit. So if we look at total development costs on a per square foot basis, which is the the chart on the bottom right, you can see that the annual increase over the past two years averages to about 4% per year. So it's a much more modest increase year over year. Um, Notably though, there are fewer special needs projects in the current uh, study. And special needs projects tend to have a higher overall cost. And this may be why we're seeing uh, the per square foot cost um, only at 4% increase uh, per year over the past two years. But I will note that although there were fewer special needs projects, uh, five of the eight San Jose projects had a set aside of 50% or more of the units for extremely low income households, um, as compared to just three out of the 21 projects in other cities. And projects with a higher percentage of ELI units generally have a higher development cost uh, than projects at higher income levels. And I'll, I'll go into a little more detail on that um, in the later slides. The next slide. Um, so in this chart, we compare San Jose uh, project costs by housing type to other cities. And as you can see, cost to develop in, in San Jose uh, is higher across the board for any category of housing. Um, the bottom. Yeah, we can't see the, the, the on our screen, Michael. Is there a way to get rid of that? Jennifer should be able to. Okay. Because we can't see a whole turn on one. Okay. Oh, there we go. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Okay, sorry. Um, but so one notable difference are projects in San Francisco, which uh, there are five included in um, the the analysis. They average over one million per unit, um, which does kind of skew the development costs for other city projects um, higher. 
Um, but we'll take a closer look at how San Jose compares to other cities in a, in a later slide. Um, but also you'll, you'll see that special needs projects come at a pretty significant premium in San Jose relative to other cities um, with 35% uh, higher costs than the average of all the other cities evaluated with special are you, needs projects. Are you gonna talk about why that's so different at all? Um, yes, I'm gonna talk a little bit about that. Okay. Okay. Um, so while it is typical to think about housing costs on a per unit basis, we did dig a little bit deeper to understand that there are structural factors that might be driving um, the differential in costs per unit um, from uh, San Jose to other cities. So we do that on the next slide. So we note that average unit sizes for San Jose projects are larger on average than the unit sizes for projects in other cities. And although large family projects are approximately 17% smaller in San Jose um, than large family projects in the other cities we evaluated, um, San Jose projects significantly exceed the unit size of other housing types, particularly the special needs projects. Um, so if we look, take a closer look at the three special needs projects that received a tax credit award in San Jose, we find that all three of them are actually also large family projects. So that is one major reason why we're seeing a, a higher cost for that particular housing type. And um, large family projects um, are those that, that include more than 50% of their units as two, bed, two bedrooms or more. Um, and so, we, we note that although you have projects in, in San Jose designated as special needs, they're actually, um, most of the projects in San Jose were actually um, meet the definition of, of large large family. So what, what's driving that increased size? Is it market conditions or does developers can control that, right? It, it has more to do with policy funding. So um, there's a, a set aside for each uh, type housing type and um, it can change from year to year. And these are set asides that are, that are set at the state level for tax credits. And so for many, for prior years, there had been more emphasis on uh, special needs projects for permanent supportive housing, which are generally smaller units um, but there's late, lately been a larger shift towards allocating more of tax credit capacity to uh, larger projects, a large family. And so that's why uh, projects often follow where the funding is available. Um, and so uh, you have more, more projects that are um, going after the large family because there's simply just more allocation available. Okay, um, next slide. So because of the unit size variances, we also wanted to see how costs compare on a square foot basis as this would provide a more clear picture. So we, we see here on the chart that only San Jose, San Francisco projects exceed the per square foot cost of projects in, in San Jose, which is not surprising. Um, we all know that projects in San Francisco are just you know, more expensive uh, to build in general, but they're also predominantly large family as well, which may be part of the, the explanation. Um, there is one other project here um, in Burbank, uh, which exceeded uh, the cost of all other projects on a per square foot basis, but we consider this one to be a bit of an outlier uh, because of the acquisition costs, which averaged 95000 per unit. That was much higher than the average for all other um, projects. 
Uh, but this project also didn't use HCD funding. Um, and so its developer fee is not capped like most other projects, like any other project that uses HCD funding, a developer fee is capped here. It was not. And so they had a much higher developer fee um, as a result. So next slide. So the prior slide shows that San Jose costs are higher than most other cities evaluated in the study uh, on a, a total uh, per square foot cost basis. But here we wanna look at the individual cost components to see if there are specific cost drivers that make up that difference. And while we see that acquisition costs are lower in San Jose as compared to other cities, we see that nearly all other costs are higher um, with construction costs, permits and third-party costs and financing costs kind of leading the way. Um, financing costs are obviously driven by construction costs, so not surprising that they are also much higher. Um, any other developers are looking at maybe cheaper construction, things like large timber. Do we, we're okay for zoning for large timber for development here, right? Yeah, it's well, be a, a potentially, I guess, a building issue, but not a planning issue. They do have alternative means of construction that they have considered. There's a possibility to get into these guys and and those are going to be Okay. Okay, sorry. Oh, no problem. Um, actually, so next slide. So we, we noted previously, um, now we're starting to dig a little bit deeper, deeper into what may be some of the in specific cost drivers of projects, what makes them unique um, as compared to other projects. And we noted that previously that San Jose projects have a higher percentage of units that are set aside for extremely low income households, which are defined as those earning no more than 30% of the area median income. And uh, just for context, for a family of four, that's about $54,000 per year. Um, projects at deeper levels of affordability come at a higher cost. Um, and we, and, and I'll explain a, a little bit more about that in the, in the next few slides. Um, as we noted previously, five out of the eight San Jose projects had a set aside of 50% or more of the units for ELI households. And we, we deem these as ELI buildings just for, for clarity. Um, that consists of 54% of all units. So meaning 54% of all of the units in the eight San Jose projects were set aside for households earning 30% or less of the area median income. And that compares to three of the 21 projects in other cities um, that met that definition of an ELI building. So that, and, uh, and that comprised just 8% of total units. So as you can see, San Jose uh, projects are significantly more uh, focused on the, the really deep levels of affordability. Um, there is a higher cost associated with ELI buildings, and that is because they require uh, greater support services, uh, which results in higher amenity and office co space costs to provide those support services. Um, ELI buildings also require operating reserves, uh, given that the low rental revenue that's collected from residents um, is much lower, and therefore there needs to be um, subsidies to, um, to offset uh, any shortfalls in um, operating costs. Um, however, when we compare ELI buildings in San Jose to other cities, we do see that costs are much higher in San Jose, but this may be a function of how few 
ELI buildings that were in other cities, um, that the other cities had smaller unit sizes and also construction cost differences. So we dig uh, into that a little bit more on the next slide. So it, it is often cited that labor costs are a significant driver of cost differences between jur jurisdictions and labor costs typically comprise between 55% and 60% of total construction costs. So any change in labor costs uh, will have a significant impact in overall construction costs. Um, we, uh, according to TBD Consultants, who is a cost estimator who prepared the cost estimates for the residential feasibility study that was presented by uh, Jake earlier, um, he noted that San Jose labor costs are on average 2% higher than Berkeley Oakland labor costs and about 1% higher than San Mateo labor costs. So that um, that does explain a, a little bit of the difference of, of why construction costs are higher um, in San Jose. Um, but we also noted that prevailing wage, which is often required by cities as a condition of funding, also results in a higher uh, construction cost, anywhere from 10 to 20%. And we, we've heard even more than that. Um, and we know that uh, most of the San Jose projects uh, uh, were utilized uh, prevailing wage uh, labor. And so we did look at the prevailing wage costs that were reported by the San Jose projects in the TCAC application. There were three projects specifically, um, which doesn't mean that they don't all use prevailing wages, just that uh, the prevailing wage uh, reporting is only provided if that a developer is seeking a, uh, a, a bonus for that. Um, but we noted that 19%, uh, there's actually a typo, that 16%, there should be 19, um, of the total construction cost is attributable to prevailing wage. Um, so that's well within the 10 to 20% that we hear um, often cited. So next slide. Next, we looked at impact fees, which you know comprise only 3% of overall costs. Um, but this is an area that developers and policy advocates commonly cite as one area that cities can control to improve feasibility. So we looked at um, the average uh, impact fees uh, for projects in the city of San Jose as compared to other cities. And, and we see that uh, from the uh, eight projects in the uh, San Jose, uh, in the current study, Nine, the city fees averaged 19,900 per unit, which was an increase over the average of 12,100 from the prior study. Um, this average is also higher than some other uh, cities or counties in the study, um, which may be due to other cities providing a higher discount to affordable housing. Um, to test this, we compared the city of San Jose impact fees for a typical market rate project uh, using the estimated provided by my colleague, Jake. And we then compared this to uh, projects in San Francisco and the city of Los Angeles. Um, we see that in LA and San Francisco, the affordable, uh, affordable housing project impact fees are about 3% and 16% respectively of what a market rate developer might pay. Um, and this compares to San Jose affordable projects, which equals to about 25% of the estimated impact fees a market rate developer uh, would pay. And what this suggests uh, is that San Francisco and Los Angeles just uh, provide higher waivers or exemptions for affordable um, housing projects. Okay, next slide. 
So there are many, many factors that influence affordable housing costs. Uh, one is just the sheer number of funding sources needed to develop affordable housing. The more funding sources that are required, the longer it may take to assemble the capital stack um, and could result in increased costs. Um, as an example, uh, your typical market rate project only requires two funding sources and that's debt and equity. Uh, but for affordable housing projects, uh, you have to assemble your tax credit equity, usually your first and, and largest amount of funding source, uh, permanent uh, financing, and all sorts of other residual receipts, grants, and other funding sources. Um, and for uh, projects in uh, in the city of San Jose, required more funding sources than other cities, which isn't surprising just given the higher costs. Um, they averaged about six different funding sources, and there were two projects that uh, actually required eight funding sources. Um, this is a little bit higher than we saw in the other cities, which averaged about five funding sources. And I think the largest, the maximum number of funding sources there was about uh, seven for, and that was just one project. Um, so as a as a consequence of affordable housing projects in San, San Jose requiring more funding sources um, and having higher costs, um, the city also subsidizes units at a higher amount than other cities, um, and that averages about 84500 per unit, which was an increase uh, from the prior study of 74000 uh, As comparison, other cities in the study received an average of 72800 per unit in local subsidies. Um, and I should note, local subsidies can include both city funding as well as county funding. So, next slide. So lastly, we compared affordable housing costs to the typical market rate project um, using the analysis prepared by Jake. And not surprisingly, affordable housing projects exceed the projected cost to develop uh, a comparable market rate housing, with the most notable difference um, being in construction costs. So with uh, the affordable housing projects in San Jose averaged uh, construction costs of about 506 per square foot, and this compares to uh, $417 uh, for the market rate uh, prototype project um, in, in Jake's analysis. And there are a lot of factors that, that drive this difference, um, some which I mentioned. Um, first, affordable housing projects typically use prevailing wage as it's often a condition of funding. Um, they also have to provide more amenities for support services. Uh, financing costs are also higher because of the costs associated with tax-exempt bonds. Um, and as I just mentioned as well, affordable projects require many different funding sources, which can add the time to develop uh, the projects and can result in higher costs. And so in summary, on the next page, we see that the, the cost drivers for uh, affordable housing in um, San Jose um, has first and foremost a lot to do with high inflation and interest rates, which have resulted in just a higher cost overall um, from the prior study. Um, we also noted that affordable housing project costs are higher in the city of San Jose than most other cities evaluated. And that's largely because we the city prioritizes development of ELI units. Um, the most recent NOFA or Notice of Funding Availability uh, requires 40% or, or allocates 40% of that funding to ELI units. And as I mentioned earlier, ELI units just have a higher development cost um, and also operating expenses. Um, another factor 
is uh, San Jose projects require more funding sources, which may result in higher soft costs. So this is the you know cost to, to um, establish or assemble the capital stack. Uh, impact fees are also higher in the city of San Jose. And uh, prevailing wage um, is also more common in affordable housing projects in, in San Jose um, than some other cities. And so with that, I'll uh, open it up to any further questions. Sure. Um, so we are behind schedule, but the staff okay with us taking some time for questions? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, so from Jake's market rate presentation, I got the sense that, you know, waiving fees would not make significantly more projects feasible for market rate. Griselda, what's the take on affordable? I didn't get a clear picture on that from the presentation. Would waiving fees make a significant impact on affordable housing? Impact fees make up about 3% of the total development budget. So it doesn't, it, it doesn't move the needle that much. But when you're talking about affordable housing funding where the city is subsidizing projects or you have you know, significant um, public subsidy, um, you know, it's more of a trade-off, if you will, uh, of whether right. you, you reduce the amount of subsidy needed or you or you you know, reduce the amount of impact fees that the city receives. Thank you. And just a follow-up, I guess, question for both of you. Um, the overall takeaway I'm getting from both presentations is that the city's policy decisions are a very small part of what is making it making it so many of these potential projects infeasible. So what do you what do you see the role of the city being in addressing this given that? That's a good that's a great question. Um I can start and I'm sure my colleagues will want to add something. I mean the first point I think that a lot of developers make to us is that while changing some of these smaller fees will not make development feasible immediately, as feasibility improves, as the economy improves, as uh, interest rates improve, et cetera, um, the, you know, the, even the small differences will make development start sooner as opposed to, you know, uh, these things all add up. So, you know, what, when the city does make progress, um, that that is one uh, element of uh, you know helping a project that has become infeasible get closer to feasibility faster. The other thing that was mentioned to us in a lot of the stakeholder meetings is just the the process of project approval, because right now the economy is not in a place where development is very attractive. That that will change, and the question is when that changes. Are there a bunch of projects that are ready to go because they've been through the process and been approved? Or does it take another year or two to get all the projects that are now feasible approved, in which case one might miss part of the cycle? Um, so those are two pieces of feedback we received about, you know, again, the city making a marginal difference in the cost that allows development to happen sooner as conditions approve. And second of all, having projects uh, approved at a time when, when the economy has recovered so that you know, they can go right away and, and might not miss uh, better parts of better conditions. And I don't know, Griselda, Leo, if you have anything to add. I, 
I just wanted to add to maybe from staff perspective also, I think just kind of piggybacking off of what Jake said, I think we're, we're kind of seeing it the same way. It's like, how can we position the city and ourselves to be in a place to have these projects move forward as soon as the market starts to shift? And I think you'll see a lot of the programs in our housing element structure that way. So how can we put the tools in place to be ready uh, to, to move projects as, as things start to shift? How can we be ready a little bit sooner? So maybe as the you know, feasibility starts to shift, some of those projects that are on kind of the cusp could go a little bit sooner. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to monopolize all the time here, but I just want to ask one more follow-up question, given that your uh, firm studies a lot of cities. One thing I've seen here in San Jose is we, you know, council might take a direction to explore changing how we assess fees on development. They'll ask staff to, uh, or a consultant to go do a study on the market and how it will impact that. And then it'll come back to council. And by the time that decision is being made, the market's not in the same place that it was but when the study was done. Uh, have you seen other cities come up with creative ways to address that kind of process? Because uh, that's definitely a challenge we've had. Um. I'm not sure that we've seen cities specifically like uh, identify that as the issue they're trying to address, but mm -hmm. you know we do see um, when there is the kind of you know so to speak the political will we do see cities acting more quickly, so that, so that they are addressing you know things in a timely market cycle manner, um, and so I think that's probably one of the things that you could do. I mean, you could obviously if you if you identify this as an actual issue, the the city could actually you know, specify required timelines for implementing changes if there are going to be changes. Um, but, you know, like I said, I don't see cities um, addressing that, like that internal, like feasibility analysis process and the timing for approving changes and so on and implementing them. I don't see that. I mean, I see cities doing things like saying, oh, well, we need to streamline approvals and do other things, but that's not specific to the city implementing changes. Yeah. Thanks everyone for allowing me time for that. But can I just piggyback on what you're saying, just be more specific so that the 20% commercial requirement is we've seen developers come back and want to, to find a way around that. If we did not require as much for commercial that could be residential uh, or at least make some stipulation about requirements for commercial build out so that it is attractive in the market, could that impact the formula for developers either making that commercial space more attractive by you know, building out more than a dirt floor or um, making less requirement for commercial. Uh, maybe you know, we do some sort of swap um, for you know, more affordable. Uh, is that something that would work? You're talking about the context of mixed use zoning. Yeah. I, I mean, Jake, do you want to take this? I, mean, I think uh, giving developers flexibility does help. The knowing that they don't have to, they're not, to the extent that the market conditions don't support something, they have some flexibility to pivot, that would help. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, uh, again, it depends on the location of the project, how feasible the commercial is. But if the location of the project is not in a strong commercial location and there is a requirement to, to build commercial space, uh, that can be, become an additional cost to the project as opposed to something that adds value to the project. And so creating flexibility on that would improve project feasibility. And I would add that that's also true of affordable housing uh, projects in that there's no real funding available for commercial 
um, space. Um, so, you know, tax credits, for example, are only allocated to the residential components. So it's really the permanent financing costs and other, you know, uh, uh, local subsidies that fund the commercial um, costs. So to the extent that that can be reduced, then it could improve the feasibility also for affordable. It, would a swap be feasible if it was, if we um, say 10% commercial required um, and 10% more affordable required or 10% affordable required, you can't buy out of it. You gotta do 10% period. And, and move forward. I think to uh, you know to the point that Grisel just made. Yes, it, it could be beneficial in the sense that if you're swapping um, commercial for affordable residential, then now at least you can bring these other funding sources to that the new square footage that you swapped. So that could be beneficial. Thank you. Just, just wanted to be clear too. Their, their models don't sue any commercial, so the feasibility is already very challenged even without. I also say for your model on affordability, they can always utilize essentially waivers when you get out of this commercial anyway. So it's a false analysis. But I wanted to acknowledge that as how was your name? Yeah, just to piggyback off your piggyback. I saw you mentioned that some developers suggested delaying property taxes, and I haven't seen that suggested before. Have other have developers seen that in other areas? And if so, where and why was that allowed? Yes, uh, I don't, sorry, I'm not sure if that question was directed at us, but uh, yeah. other cities have successfully reduced, have, have successfully used reducing property taxes to spur development. So Seattle, Philadelphia, uh, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with Philadelphia. I mean, they gave a property tax holiday for new development of, I think, you know, between five and 10 years. Um, which is obviously a, a major cost to the city, but uh, they spurred a huge amount of development uh, in the city when they did that. And other cities have similarly used that. Yeah, strategy. New York, New York, although it may be phasing out, New York has used a pilot program, a payment in lieu of taxes program. So they pay lower payments in lieu of taxes and then ramp back up to their full property tax burden. And really stand in St. Louis as well. To add, you know, we... The city council was also very interested in this, given the, the feedback that we got. Um, we're, we're looking more into it. And it's a little more, I think some of the cities you mentioned are outside of California, so it's, it's a little bit, it gets a little bit more complicated in the, in the context of the state. Um, and we, we probably need a little bit more help with that because, you know, the city's portion of, of property tax is about you know, 14 cents on the dollar, really. So, um, you know, a significant state and county portion that if you really want to do kind of the, the more meaningful like tax, property tax and payment, kind of to look at those pieces. But we're kind of looking at multiple versions of that to see if it's possible or not. Well, and I think there are people experiencing the state legislative level. Too, right, right. Like it. So yeah, it can be a new, a lot of Sacramento opportunities for this. Like when, because you don't really need the county and the, and the state, right, and the portions of theirs to, there it is now. Yeah, <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> I have two hopefully quick questions here. First one was about, uh, I guess, how these sorts of studies respond to changes in the regulatory environment. So there was already mentioned, you know, mass timber is a potentially cheaper construction method. Um, and I'm particularly curious about single staircase buildings, which I know the governor signed a bill earlier this year to kind of take the first steps towards legalizing those. I know the sample project in Seattle that fit 17 units on 
less than tenth of an acre with that sort of you know construction style. Uh, so I'm curious if future versions of this study might evaluate both different construction methods and materials, and then also different you know building technologies. Absolutely, I think uh, that's a great question, and uh, I, I think future versions of the study should certainly evaluate that. I think at this point, you know, we were kind of looking at what what is the prevalent type of construction now and in the recent past. And as you know, there has not been uh, that much mass timber construction yet. It seems to be just starting. If that proves out to be, you know, something that becomes both, you know, commonly accepted by developers and also construction lenders, um, that will, you know, could make a big impact. Uh, could make a big impact in cost. I, I think, you know, we'll, we'll see. Similarly for single staircase buildings, I mean, that's another huge, you know, if, if that change kind of can fully go through and change the way that buildings are designed, it, it can really make a huge difference. So I definitely think that's a great question. And as those become actual realities, the city will want to incorporate them in uh, future studies to see how that affects feasibility. Thank you. And my second uh, quick question is just if either of these studies look at any costs associated with compliance with you know citywide design standards and development standards. I was talking to a developer a couple of weeks ago who was basically talking about you know some of the building costs associated with things like setbacks and uh, step backs and facade articulations. Uh, and he basically said, you know, anytime you deviate from just a box, the construction costs go up. So I'm curious if we try to quantify that at all and see if any easing of any of our uh, design standards could actually increase feasibility in any cases. Yeah, so that's a good question. Uh, we did not, I, I think some of those uh, costs are implied in, in our uh, development costs. We did not separately study how are San Jose's design costs and requirements more than or different than other cities in this study. We also did hear the feedback um, from some of the developers that that there are costs that at least they believe, uh, you know, may not may not occur in other cities uh, where there's quality development. So that could be something to examine. Um, you know, I, I don't know, again, just looking at the big picture, is that going to turn infeasible into feasible tomorrow? No, but you know, as as we're trying to make marginal differences to make things better, uh, that may be worth more study. And there have been a few projects where the uh, applicants or developers have requested for exception to our design guidelines. And some of the information they provided are like a proof format to show that, yeah, otherwise it will be financially infeasible. I just want to add to, I mean, this is why we want to do this on a regular basis. So those types of things we're talking about, we can try to respond to, understand, you know, they're helpful if they're not helpful and how we could change things or how we could respond better. So that's why we dedicated having this part of the And I have one more quick question that I just have remembered. I think in the overview of the prototypes that were studied, it looked like the lowest parking ratio that was evaluated was like in the 0 0.8 to 1 units, uh, presumably per unit. Uh, did we look at any lower parking ratios and whether that would affect feasibility? Uh, we did not. And it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, the, the parking ratio, especially, you know, for type one and these others, it does affect feasibility because it's costly to build uh, parking and take space from a project for parking. On the other hand, some of the feedback we heard from 
the developers and other principals was that our parking ratios are actually too low because realistically, nobody's going to buy a three bedroom or two bedroom condominium if they can't get, you know, two parking space or at least one parking space. And so, uh, you know, I, I think your, your question is perceptive in that, that, that is a, that is a factor in, in, uh, feasibility, but unfortunately, at least what we heard is that demand is there is still demand for parking and that makes it hard to just say we're going to do a project with very little parking so it's a good question if you need parking that's part of the purchase that seems like that can remedy that problem um, sorry you're saying you're saying, you're saying un parking. unbundle parking like you're saying unbundle parking from the unit yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It, yes and no in the sense of like if if uh, the market rent the market competition is such that they are um, uh, people are selling on the for sale side for sale condominiums. You know they are people expect to receive uh, at a certain price point. They expect to receive to receive a certain number of parking spaces as part of their unit. If you unbundle it, sure they could pay less, but they still want the parking, and so it doesn't necessarily help. Yeah, because you create two markets: one for the unit, one for the parking. Yeah, uh, we can do that, but it's if you build less parking and it gets sold out, right? then um, it, it hampers the sales of the remaining units that don't have any parking available to them. I think we, we tried to be as kind of aggressive as we felt like was reasonable in the parking assumption, but yeah, I think there's even some direct feedback in, you know, I think we have 0.08 in type one and, and I think some direct feedback from people was like, oh, I wouldn't go below one even if you down, down. So I think we, we tried to balance that, but I think they're, they're really limited on, on what, what the, Kind of the financial market will bear in terms of what they're interested in. I, I think that's a good job on that because the market will determine, and that's a part of the market condition for a builder. Let that dump it higher, and that's what the policy designed that way. Right. So I mean, oh, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to ask Coach Rocky and move on to the next presentation, but I, I just wanted, you know, I know that impact fees only represent three percent, like the whole cost of a project, but I still think to incentivize. Developers, I mean, have you thought about reducing that, uh, freezing that for some time period? Yeah, I think you know, coming out of the study session, we got some more questions from from council, and that's something we're evaluating right now. Council soon with some some concepts. I know, in particular, on affordable housing, we've got some direction to look at re reducing uh, or suspending construction taxes. Uh, something that we used to do, um, something that could help lower that kind of overall impact fee on. So we do have some interesting direction for council to put back with those changes, but I think we're looking more broadly. Um, you know, our, we've had our downtown high-rise program uh, for a long time, and um, you know, should that continue? Should that kind of be expanded? You know, given the current conditions, those are all things I think we're, we're kind of evaluating and considering. Um, again, so that it's not that it necessarily has an impact in the current, current market, but so that we're set up you know, in 12 months or 18 months from now, maybe there's something that we could look at for uh, moving along. So. Yeah, and then obviously for a developer, time is money, right? Mm -hmm. So the faster you could get something approved, faster you get the money, you know, maybe at a reduced cost of the way the interest rates have been rising. Uh, I would like to see maybe, you know, uh, somehow over the counter express more stuff like that where you're working with whatever professionals to really help expedite these projects. I think that would make a significant change. Yeah, so the, uh, one of our major programs in the housing element is, is looking at that ministerial approval process for, for housing development. So that that would be, you know, a code, a code hearing would be a very speedy process. Meeting of public care. 
How fast is that process? Are we ready to move on to the next presentation? Well, I'm curious. So I can use SB35 as an example to usher into. So SB35 does the same thing. No secret ministerial. The only requirement is the labor, the unionized, not, not living wages and all that. We've seen that even after projects have gone to SB35 and we've approved them, they don't have money to build, so they go for federal funds and then they come back to do NEPA, which is also uh, environmental requirements from the feds. And that's fine. And Mark already has some good that. I've never known speed to market to not be important. Uh, and it, you know, that's, I think that could resolve a lot of tension because they're right precariously placed between business cycles. <laughs> You're on the wrong book inside. <laughs> it's never gonna work. That's just interesting too. There's the speed at which we can permit and construct housing usually outlasts the council. Interesting. Well, I so yeah. There you go. <laughs> Jay, Griselda, Leo, and Jared, thank you so much for that presentation. Um, we're going to move on to the next item on our agenda, which is a legislative update from Dennis Wade from the city attorney's office. Uh, I'm going to do it in a minute. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a nice Bye. weekend. Feel free to stay if you want to. So nice to see you all. Fun. Um, so I'll try to make it quick. I mean, I. I trying to budget for 20 minutes, but I'll do the best I can do it. Um, but I wanted to start off with saying that this, again, was a legislative year of housing, housing, housing. We saw a lot of housing bills, and we just could see from these presentations kind of like what we're up against, right? The frustrations, the cost, the time, the impediments, the regulations, I mean, it's just overwhelming. And so you have another legislative body trying to figure it out for us, right? So you have the state, um, I'll just go through, there were five bills that addressed streamlining, seven bills addressing CEQA, six bills addressing density land use planning, three bills uh, addressing ADUs, two bills addressing enforcement, these are all housing related, six bills uh, addressing anti-displacement and affordable housing, three bills addressing financing and costs, and three bills addressing parking. So that's a lot of bills, a lot of time, a lot of resources funneled into solving this problem. Um, so I chose three assembly bills and three Senate bills, um, and I'll go through them somewhat quickly. Um, but obviously, if you guys have any questions, you can ask questions. I do. I am not an expert on legislation. I read it just like anybody else online, right? I wasn't involved in these these bills, but I'm always happy to kind of noodle through some of this stuff. Um, the first one, I'm going to start with CEQA. And um, I think Commissioner Tordias, you sent a list of certain bills that you might fix from that list, as well as maybe some that, uh, that Director Manford had, had sent to us. Um, AB 1307, which is a uh, addresses residential noise impacts. And so that earlier this year, or earlier, um, yeah, this year, 
we had a court case that came down in favor of uh, a neighborhood organization called Make UC a Good Neighbor. And if you're all familiar with UC Berkeley and the campus and People's Park, well, UC was going to develop People's Park with affordable housing and uh, student housing. So they every every 10 years, maybe 20 years, no, every 10 years, there's a long-range development plan that every UC puts into place, addresses housing, enrollment, et cetera, how the, how the UC plans to grow. Um, so interestingly enough, there was another CEQA challenge uh, from another case last year uh, against UC's long-range development plan and the EIR associated with that plan. Um, the CEQA petition challenged in um, the enrollment, basically saying that UC hadn't analyzed enrollment growth properly under its supplemental EIR, um, and they won. And so uh, the legislature rushed in and created a you know emergency legislation to say no 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 enrollment enrollment is exempt from CEQA. Shocking, amazing. This is another reaction law. Basically, uh, the appellate court sided with the neighborhood group, make you see a good neighbor. And, and uh, because there was a secret petition that basically said, hey, they didn't analyze, among other things, they didn't analyze the noise pollution from parties and student housing around People's Park, they didn't mitigate it, that, therefore the uh, environmental document was insufficient, and so they tossed it out. And so, so you're saying this is a bill that exact party bodies from I didn't care. So yeah, he, so Buffy, Assembly Member Buffy Wicks uh, introduced AB 1307, emergency legislation again, UC Roots is a very powerful lobby that came in and said, hey, legislature, uh, fix this because it's going to California Supreme Court, they're going to address it. Um, so basically, they uh, came in with AB 1307 to specify that residential projects, noise generated by occupants and their guests is not significant effect on the environment, um, that they basically using this law to reestablish an existing precedent that minor noise nuisances such as human voices will be addressed through local nuisance ordinances and not through CEQA. Um, so CEQA cannot be used to consider people as pollution. So that's it's kind of a fun one to start off with. Is there a sign that cures for that law? You said it's emergency, so was there a time cure for it that it's effective? It was an emergency, yeah, it was a it was in effect immediately, except I think it was something that uh, I don't know how the process works for, you know, kind of like an emergency ordinance, but whatever, whenever it was adopted, I'm sure the, the governor either signed it immediately. But when does it expire? It doesn't. Sometimes. It does. Yeah. It doesn't. Okay. So, but you can see, I bring this up also because you could see uh, if this had gone through and it wasn't challenged, or at least the Supreme Court affirmed this ruling. You could see the abuse from people from developers saying like or anybody who wanted to stop a development be like hey you didn't analyze all the noise that's going around here from people living in these apartment buildings or whatever it is around so anyway they came in they put it into that um so the next bill i'm going to talk about is assembly bill 1449 from assembly mental health alvarez and this is the new secret exemption for affordable housing and to qualify for this new exemption um project must be 100 percent low-income housing uh, meet prevailing wage and other labor standards. And I think that's important because a lot of these affordable housing bills 
have these prevailing wage standards, and this is a huge issue with cost. I mean, it's it's this is just if you want to get embroiled in politics and and labor kind of labor's investment in the capital, but also like a prevailing wage is a very important thing for people living in this valley, right? So um, this is this is super interesting. So you have uh, prevailing wage other labor standards has to be an infill location you need a range of criteria tending to ensure the site has access to transit other amenities. Um, it has a, a more permissible definition of infill, which is interesting. Um, so it's requiring a site to be surrounded by urban uses on three sides rather than 75%. Uh, also notable that the, the site location criteria can be met by one half mile proximity to high quality transit uh, or a major transit stop or a location in a very low vehicle area, which is intended to capture areas uh, that don't have access to transit, but otherwise have lower vehicle miles traveled, averages in surrounding areas. Um, another option for meeting the location criteria has been added um, for projects within a mile or two for a parcel of rural area of six or more designated amenities, for example, grocery store, public park, community center, pharmacy, library, or school. Um, so that's for AB 1449, new seek exemption for affordable housing. Um, another assembly member, uh, sorry, assembly bill 1033, just briefly, assembly member team introduced this. And so uh, we used to, or the state used to uh, allow local governments to restrict selling ADUs separately. Uh, they used to, it was only uh, reserved for uh, qualified nonprofits um, who could convey or sell ADUs separately from the primary, primary residence to a low-income buyer through uh, a tenancy in common. So that was a very strict kind of requirement to be able to sell an ADU separate from the primary residence. And now AB 1033 allows Cities it doesn't require cities, but allows cities to write an ordinance to to permit the sale, separate sale as a condominium of the ADU, separate from the house. Um, but uh, is they exploring doing anything like that? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we can visit the housing elements. So, so he's giving you the updates of the laws that have been passed. We're still the catching up to the laws. Talk to us five. Minutes. So, AB ten thirty three. The hindrance for people to do that is you have to have an HOA established. I think that's what Davis Sterling laws still and, apply. Yeah. And so, you know, that means lawyers we that's the, that's the lawyer book. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> HOA fees, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. I think I saw the operation that's for sure. I mean, I think it's planning we asked council, you know, this is I'm glad you believe in full employment for lawyers. That's From a planning standpoint, we have condos, we need to ensure access without gets built in terms of building. We and I don't want to just enable something that creates comparability in the future and access in the future. Then you have to pay an attorney to figure out the conflict, right? So. Yeah, we're baked in, man. Creating affordable home ownership through this would be a good thing for you know a lot of people sure. that are living at home with their parents and want to move out. As we just heard with mobile home parks, I mean, this is another solution to allow people to be a template. Yeah, if it's done, yeah. <laughs> Multiple story ADUs, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think you must. We're able to.
And so this one's about the, it's like a flip. Yeah, now we're able to provide allow. So no, no, we were so state we weren't state, state we weren't able before to uh, allow. Yeah, we to, right? yeah. No, we can't. In a couple years, maybe we'll be required to allow. <laughs> <laughs> so now to the Senate bills. Um, fifthly, uh, Senate Bill 684 from Senator Calderero. Ministerial approval for up to 10 unit housing projects on small sites. Um, this addresses the missing middle type of housing, which is a range of house building style with uh, multiple units. Basically, basically they're um, compatible in scale and form to a detached single family home um, located in a walkable neighborhood. So 684 requires CEQA exempt ministerial approval for up to 10 units of housing on qualifying multifamily infill sites of the five acres. No, but this is this is streamlined super process. So a lot of this, yeah, a lot of this is um, a lot of this legislation is addressing CEQA and a lot of this bills because people are very legislatively aware that CEQA is being used uh, to stop. Um, so next we have uh, SP4, which is also known as the Digby Bill. So extra points for anybody who knows what Digby means. Yes, in God's backyard. Yeah. All right. Yes. That's not school. Yes, in God's backyard. So this allows faith-based institutions and nonprofit colleges to build affordable multifamily housing on their land by removing zoning restrictions and streamlining the permitting process, right? So basically it doesn't matter what the zoning is anymore. If you pay base, you can build affordable housing. Um, uh, the new law guarantees by right approval of new housing as long as they're consistent from objective building standards comply with existing environmental protections that exempt from sequel. So some, you know, just- we don't know that I know what you're gonna ask. We don't know the details. <laughs> but it's interesting, I mean you figure like a lot of these a lot of churches have um, it's funny this is the thing we were struggling with and we're struggling with it from as Jared said the sequel part of it is really challenging because um because everything's becoming exempt in sequel that means that cities have to do all the environmental analysis when they pass the enabling legislation or ordinance and that makes it really hard so we were really struggling with that but lo and behold, the state comes and does it for us. So, oh, that's really <laughs> so no more planning anymore, you guys. Wait, when that happens, there's no more planning. Yeah. <laughs> well, religious institutes are in residential areas, so then the impact to the residential neighborhood could be significant. Absolutely. Yeah. We're out of all the state did it. That's what it is, right? So we have cover, basically. That's right. So you're the politicians who are in those districts. That's a village remedy. It can flex from our to get on that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> so finally, on SB4, as other pro worker provisions, again, uh, for construction workers must be paid prevailing wages, projects over 10 units, and then for those over 50 units, in addition to prevailing wages, they must also offer apprentices employment and pay for health care. So, uh, 
So last but not least, Senate Bill 423, which is an extension of SB 35. This is another one, Winters, uh, Senator Winters bill. So the last one, SB 43 bill was Senator Winter. This is the second uh, significant bill, which expands its strength in Senate Bill 35. So that was passed in 2017. So as a reminder, Senate Bill 35 from 2017 requires cities and counties that failed to meet their regional housing needs assessment or unit numbers. Um, uh, to ministerial approved multifamily housing developments that meet certain requirements, i.e., deed restricted housing, uh, deed restricted affordable housing in urban area, infill, zone residential, major objective standards, labor standards, providing protection for uh, buildings, cultural resources, and other certain uh, sensitive regions. So, I don't know if you all remember SB 35, but this is basically an extension of that. So, um, 423 extends SB 35's. Uh, sunset timeline to January 1st, 2036, and expands both how jurisdictions become subject to streamlined ministerial approvals and the types of projects that can qualify for approval. Um, SB 423 expands the reach uh, subject to streamlined ministerial approval, and then it refines the standards necessary to qualify in an effort to make projects more financially viable. Um, so I have a uh, a comparison that I took offline that kind of shows the old SB 35 requirement and then kind of the updated requirement. So I'll just read through those. Uh, there's about six of them. Touch base if we have time for that real quick. Sure. Um, so with, with uh, multifamily housing developments on state-owned or leased property, right? So this is important to state-owned property. Um, local governments under SB 35 were able to review and approve qualifying multifamily housing development projects within their jurisdiction on state-owned property or state-leased property. Now, AB 423 actually allows the Department of General Services to choose to act in the place of the local government to come in and approve and review uh, qualifying multifamily housing development projects. Um, so in circumstances in which the government could uh, previously review SB 35 projects on state land, now the state can come in and review its own projects. Or review projects on its own. Um, so applicability, real quick, the SB 35, SB 35 um, uh, project to be located in jurisdictions that fail to produce the number of RENA, its RENA numbers. Um, basically, I don't know if we're ever going to reach our RENA numbers, so we're always going to be subject to SB 35. The threshold is if you're not using your mark. Eight, and if you're not getting your affordable, and most of these things are not the affordable. Yeah. So then that's what applies to us, which means that 50% of the units or more have to be affordable, which effectively means it's all our affordable housing. Nobody builds 50% market rate. Thank you. Yeah. So this is the applicability basically a lot more jurisdictions are going to be subject to this new law that weren't subject before. Um, and then consistency determination, a local government under SB 35. Must improve development if the local government determines development is consistent with objective zoning standards or planning standards. Now, AB 423 has changed that. Local government must approve a development if the planning director, not the local government, the planning director or equivalent position determines the development is consistent with objective planning standards. So basically, this takes it out of the city council's hands, gives it to the planning director to. So, um, so basically, it's empower staff to make determinations based on applicable objective standards without additional process or political pressure. Uh, permissible review of a development application. So, SB 35 
Planning Commission or equivalent board or commission may conduct design review or public oversight of the development. Now, Planning Commission or equivalent board is strictly limited to design review. So Planning Commission can only look at design review. Um, so with this previous change that I just mentioned, SB 423 requires staff rather than elected or appointed officials to make final decisions about approving or denying ministerial projects. And the design review hearing remains allowed, however, the final action of the project is taken by staff. We don't do that here anymore. Um, so prerequisites to project approval, um, now SB or AB 423, uh, local governments cannot require any of the following before approving a development that meets the requirements for an SB 35 project. So we cannot require studies, information, or other materials that do not pertain directly to determining whether the development is consistent with objective planning standards applicable to the development. Um, compliance with any standards necessary to receive post-entitlement permit. Local governments can require compliance with certain standards after development projects approved. So the impact of this is local governments must wait until later in the development process to enforce certain standards. Local governments still have the ability to enforce those standards. However, local governments cannot withhold project approval to address post-entitlement concerns. And last but not least, Pre-application materials, uh, SB 35, uh, require before submitting an application for qualifying multifamily developments, the developer must submit to local government a notice of intent to submit an application. Now, under 423, the same requirement applies, but the development, uh, if the development is in a proposed census tract that's designated either as moderate resource area, low resource area, or high segregation and poverty area, the local government must hold a public meeting to provide an opportunity for the public or local government to comment on the development. So um, this basically ensures that the public has adequate notice about the streamlined ministerial project that's happening in their neighborhood, um, an opportunity to provide non-binding comments before a project submitted. Um, SB 423 requires additional public outreach for projects in low or moderate resource areas and areas of high segregation and poverty. So that's an interesting twist on the USB. So I have a question. Uh, a lot of the problems we've had from a process standpoint for SB 35 is the community members saying that even when it's not about it, you know, they don't say it. Or we get a call from 18th floor, something's going on here. What is it? Well, it's streamlined projects, no need to uh, do any public review or uh, hearing. One project in particular, I know you know about this, uh, the KUSA, right? D9, flight of law students and all that. I mean, can you throw more light on that and how? Because we cannot require, well, we recommend public here, but then we are requiring studies and all that coming out with information that don't have anything to do with SB 35, but then we are linking it to safety as well. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to tie it into that last requirement, right? How that might impact. So uh, this is a particular project that is less than 90 feet. What's the total feet? Maybe even closer than that, 45 feet. I can't remember. Anyway, there's a gas station. Is this the Chuck E. Cheese project? Yes. Yeah. So there's a housing project that's going that's that's within 45 feet, 90 feet of the gas pump at the front door of the project. And so the neighborhood is up and I'm saying this is ridiculous. How could you possibly not do an environmental study of this 
of this project. <laughs> this is out of our hands because in the SB35 project, there's no sequel review. And so the question came up about whether we safety review. Uh, and of course, we do for these types of projects, but it is not under CEQA. Um, so I will tie it back in that had we, you know, under this new uh, SB423, we would have been required, once we received the intent to submit an SB35 application, we would have been required to have a public meeting with everybody there, with the developers, with everyone to say, here's what's happening here. Um, so now, <clears throat> now the public is, in total, you know, is, is notified that this is going to be happening. Um, I don't know if that would have changed things much because they're non-binding comments. It just mm -hmm. would, you know. And I'm not sure. That might be how it works here. Yeah, so that, that's, oh, right. That's, that's, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. I mean, I think there was a project up in Richmond that was, um, you know, contaminated soil. Right? It's landfill. Here you have an SB35 project. Sorry, you know, there's nothing we can really do about this. Yes, yes, yes. I think the intent is not to let, like, to do the application. It's like, I don't need to go to the public with this process. So I would probably look at that's why that policy is that at least the city has some backing if we want to push that bridge further for that outreach that application. And getting used to the inputs that are at least heard, whether we can. Apply it. The rest of the changes we need to know we can. But it's an interesting dynamic that you know you kind of start thinking about. It's affordable housing then has less and less protections against you know who knows what kind of environmental impacts it has. You know less design review. Right? It's like the cheapest, most streamlined kind of project for you know you're getting rid of uh, impact fees that provide for. You know, parks and provide for other things that might be necessary for uh, for folks in you know different income levels. And it's just I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of trade offs that happen. It's, 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 it's a a there's no functional. There's no teeth. So you know, you can you get the your voice heard, but no one has to listen. But it takes the city off and says, "Well, you were heard." Yeah. Well, well, it gives us the teeth to make the developers. This is to at least say so you have to go in front of the crowd. Yeah. It makes them a present, yeah. but it doesn't make them listen. Chair, what do you want to do up? Yeah. All right. Okay. So it's like the presentation. Yeah. All right. Can I ask um, a real quick question. On sure. On the when we can appear on Zoom, uh, as far as I'm hearing, did the did the law around that change at all, or it? They did update, from what I remember, they did update. Uh, it did not change uh, your ability to appear. Okay. So I think they just kind of. The center there had a bill, but I'm guessing you didn't pass. I don't believe so. What I know, though, is that AB 361, which was the emergency powers, were kind of bypassing the, the teleconference rules on the Impact Act. Uh, made or made permanent, basically. I think that it's no longer just applies to COVID. Anytime the governor has a state of emergency, okay. we're able to okay. take advantage of those teleconference rules. But okay. yeah, there was nothing behind that. Yeah, okay. that made drastic. Okay. But I, I mean, if there is, I'll look into it. I just okay. Don't know what's going on. 
Thank you very much. Um, thanks, Daniel. Yeah. So we're about 15 minutes behind schedule. We are scheduled for a 15 minute break, but um, I'm going to suggest we still have the break because we have 35 minutes blocked off for public comment at the end, and we have one member of the public on Zoom and one here in person. So I think we'll probably not use that whole time. Well, so if we may ask that, uh, a word so that it can start posting. Oh, that's a good, good point. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. Okay. Three slides. So. Oh, okay. All right. Please. All right. So we'll talk. At this time, we'll take a fifteen-minute break. I'm not going to be because my daughter's going back.